0: and welcome to Truth Quest podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of scripture. Our desire is to know what God's word says so we can know what to believe. Rather than approaching the Bible to try to back up what we already believe, we wanna be like the Bereans who search the scriptures to see if these things are true, receiving them with joy, but then making sure that they're true. We want to make sure that we are seeking what God has told us to seek. Now, our first question This is our Q&A. If you have a question, you can enter it into the comment section below. Write the word question in front of it and then reread it a couple of times. Make sure that it makes sense. Add the reference to it as well. That helps. We can take time to look them up and look it up in context. Our first question comes from our study from the book of Luke. We've been there for a few Sundays in a row talking about Jesus, talking about the end of time. He talks about the destruction of Jerusalem. He talks about the abomination of desolation and the tribulation period. So he talks about Jerusalem in two different time sets. And we've been looking at the signs of the times or what people call the signs of the times. Earthquakes, wars, famines pestilences, when really they're not the signs of the times. It's the convergence of these in what are birth pains. It's getting more and more intense. That's the idea. And in this study, on a few occasions, I've talked about staying away from the over sensationalized stuff that's out there people setting dates, people telling you that this particular sign is a sign of the end. You know, we got a blood moon coming. That's the sign of the end. Or we got a triad of blood moons coming. That is the end. And the end's going to happen by Sept- in September during the Feast of the Trumpets. It's a two-day feast. No one can know the day or the hour, but we know the two days that Jesus is going to come back again. And I've been warning against these. In history, it's been so bad. In the 1800s, there was a guy by the name of William Miller that set up the Great Disappointment. He said that Jesus would come back before 1844. And of course, he didn't come back and many people didn't plant their crops. Many people sold everything they had to get the word out that Jesus was coming back for people to get saved. And so they ignored what the word of God said to occupy until I come. And that's the danger of sensationalizing the return of Jesus Christ. You cause people to begin to believe that things aren't going to go on past that time. And what if you're wrong? What are the consequences? What happens in people's lives if you are wrong? We are to know the signs of the times. Jesus gave us signs so that we would know what the end of the age is like. The Bible tells us that lawlessness will increase, that the love of many will grow cold, that there will be many false teachers, the doctrines of demons. We know that there will be a convergence of all of these different things, famines and pestilence and earthquakes, which seems to take place. So knowing that we're at the end, we look up because our redemption draws nigh. But we occupy, do the work we're supposed to do. And what if this is a birth pain that passes and then we have another 50 years? We wanna be faithful to take care of our family. The Bible says if a man doesn't take care of his family, he's worse than an infidel, worse than an unbeliever. And so we wanna make sure we take care of our family. But the question that I got was, all of those things, these things I've said in messages, but the question I got was, does the Bible ever forbid setting dates? In other words, for these people that are doing these things, does the Bible ever tell them that it's wrong? And I wanna show you a passage out of the book of luke and this is in the very beginning where we were studying and and this is where let's just read it now i'll I'll show you this passage that does tell us not to listen to people that say that jesus is going to come back very soon Look, look at verse seven so they asked him saying teacher when will these things be and what will be the what will be and what sign will there be when these things are about to take place and he said take heed that no one deceive you there's gonna be a lot of deceptions over the last days. You have the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that's the Mormons. And they used prophecy and sensationalizing it to build their cult. So did the Jehovah's Witnesses. The Seventh-day Adventists come out of the great disappointment, are the, um, the Millerites. And that's not to say all Seventh-day Adventist churches are bad. There certainly are those that are, but there are some I understand that are okay. I'm not really sure. I just don't want to. I don't want to speak poorly about someone when they shouldn't be. But all of a, a lot of different groups and even cults today use the last days to take advantage of people. And so Jesus knew this. And so the first thing he says is, take heed that no one deceives you. So just don't go believing anybody about whatever sign they might try to come up with being in the sun and the moon and the stars. He says, take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he and the time has drawn near. Therefore, do not go after them. Notice the second part there and the time has drawn near. Meaning people who say this is the end right now is the end. Looking around and saying we are living in the last days. It's clear we're living in the latter days. The Bible says in the latter days that God would bring Israel back into the land and the last days we will see the Gog and Magog wars. It's clear when we look around that we're living in the signs of the times. But it's the pro- a problem when people sensationalize it and say, I, I, I'm believing that it's happening on this date. It's happening September of this year. And we're about to see a ton more of it because you've got 2000 years from the time that Jesus was crucified coming up in uh, 2032 subtract seven years. You've got 2025. A lot of people are going to be setting dates in 2025. There are people setting dates this year. This is this is 2022 for September. Here we are in uh, August. And so they say September in the Feast of Trumpets, Jesus is coming back. And there's a lot of sensationalism about it. There's new books being written all the time about signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars. And I don't know that these are signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars. It's fine if they wanna say these things and say, we don't know when Jesus is coming back, but make sure you're ready because it looks like he could come back at any moment. But occupy until he comes, do the work of an evangelist. All of that would be good. But it's when they begin to point things out and say, Jesus is coming back by this date, that it becomes harmful in the life of people and should not be done. So the question, does the Bible ever say not to do it? No, but the Bible does say if you hear somebody doing it, don't listen to them. The signs of the times are exciting. Prophecy is exciting. Knowing that God foretold the future, knowing that we're looking around us and seeing that everything in scripture could be fulfilled. Even technological things that couldn't be done in their day can be fulfilled. That's exciting. But don't allow the over sensationalism to grab a hold of you and starting to believe something that is not true so it's good to see you guys Uh, if you have a question you can submit it by writing the word question out and then writing out your question Um, include any scriptural references that you have we can take time to look them up sometimes oftentimes the question is answered when you just look at something in context so we have our first question here today good to see you guys by the way our first question here comes from uh uh fact check these hands in fact, these Hand says your thoughts on why so many Christians are buying into wokeness and/or denying the increasing evil of the day. Are they deceived by Satan? If so, does that mean they are not saved? So, why so many Christians are buying into wokeness um, and denying the increasing of evil? Uh, I. I think that there is a great falling away happening. We're talking about the last days, right? One of the things in the last days is that men will heap up for themselves teachers who will tickle their ears and there will be a great falling away, a great apostasy. And I think we're seeing that people are walking away from Christ. And that starts by buying into things that are just not true and are just not important. I um. I want to be careful that I don't venture into, into an area that's not our wheelhouse as Christians. We wanna stay true to the word of God. We wanna know what the word of God has to say. And as far as knowing whether or not they're Christians, fact check these hands, uh, I think that that's not our business to do. Jesus said that the enemy was gonna sow tares among the wheat and that we were not to worry about it. But in the harvest, he's gonna separate them. Because what if somebody really is a genuine Christian? Christian, and you judge them that they're not, and they are. And I've seen this happen. I've seen where genuine Christians have been told that they are not Christians, and that's a dangerous thing to do. So um, denying the evil of our day, I'm sure there are Christians that are doing it. I have not run into any that are denying the evils that are taking place in our day. Um, I'm sure there are some post-tribulationists or post-millennialists that believe the world's getting better and better. We're gonna hand Jesus a world that is getting better and better, um, would look at the world around us today and deny some of the evil. That doesn't mean that they're not genuine Christians. It just means that they have a different worldview. And when they look at the world around us, they don't see what we see when we see the things that are happening. So I think many Christians are buying into um, wokeness, progressive Christianity. And when I, when you say wokeness, that's kind of a political term. Uh, I, I kind of like progressive Christianity better because progressive Christians can have a lot of the same things in common with wokeness. And um, they are denying the resurrection of Christ. They are saying to follow your heart. And you can't really pigeonhole progressive Christianity because to, to different people, it, it means different things. But overall, they're trying to follow their heart. They're progressing away from what would we would, would say that foundation of believing the Bible and following after the things that are in Scripture. And so, um, are they deceived by Satan? Yeah, I think Satan is the father of lies. And all lies that are out there come from him. And um, I think that, Each person is different. Some of these people that are buying into wokeness or going progressive in their Christianity um, are not saved. And some of them are saved and they're on dangerous ground in what they're doing. So we want to be careful that we don't judge them, but we also want to stay away from these things. All right, thank you, Fact Check these hands. I appreciate it. Uh, We have a question from The Whole Truth. The Whole Truth says, hello, Pastor Robert. Do you think the Ark of the Covenant is yet to be found? Do you feel it must be found in order for the completion of the third temple? Revelation 11, 19 shows it in heaven. Thoughts? Yes, thank you, um, the whole truth, I appreciate that. Um, First of all, let's just break down your questions. Do you think the Ark of the Covenant is yet to be found? Uh, The answer to that is, I don't know. It would be the greatest archeological discovery of all times if you found the Ark of the Covenant. I think we could say today that the greatest archaeological discovery of the 20th century was the dead sea scrolls and that there hasn't been anything that is that significant since then there have been a lot of great archaeological discoveries but the ark of the covenant which came up missing during the reign of solomon which was 900 years before the time of christ that's a long time ago and of course there's conjecture that it's in Ethiopia. There are some people that say they have it in Ethiopia and they've been protecting it for years. Um, and that um, that Solomon gave it to the Queen of Sheba, I think it was. And I don't know whether that's true. Uh, and of course, we don't know whether the Ark of the Covenant will be found. There's nothing in the Bible that tells us that it has to be found for the temple to be rebuilt. Remember, if it disappeared during the days of Solomon, it disappeared out of the first temple. Then you had the second temple, which was rebuilt by Ezra and Zerubbabel, Nehemiah rebuilt the walls. And then you had the third temple, which was Herod's temple, which was really a remodeling of the second temple that was built. But they didn't have the Ark of the Covenant for the temple built by Ezra, nor the remodeling for for Herod. And so you can rebuild the temple without the Ark of the Covenant. I don't know what they did with the blood of sacrifices, maybe just sprinkle it in the holies of holies, but the Ark of the Covenant is believed to have been gone well, well before that. Um, now, uh, you go on to say, do you feel it must be found in order to complete the third temple, um, to complete the third temple um, in Revelation 11, and 19? And um, no, and then you say that it's seen in heaven. And the thing about the the tabernacle, so the temple was made from the tabernacle, and Solomon and Herod and Ezra added more to it, and I think that the newly rebuilt temple will have more things added to it as well. But the there were, the, the tabernacle was all shadows of things that were in heaven. So the candelabra the, speaks of the Holy Spirit. The, the incense speaks of the prayers. And all the things in the temple speak of things that are up in heaven and maybe even are a shadow or a copy of the things that are up in heaven. So there may be an Ark of the Covenant that is up in heaven that is the real Ark of the Covenant. As opposed to the one that was made here, which would have been a model or a copy of the one that is up in heaven. So you find these concepts of copies and models in the book of Hebrews. And um, so could God have caught up the Ark of the Covenant into heaven and it be there now? Sure, I don't know why God couldn't do that. God can do whatever he wants to do, right? So I don't know why God couldn't have done that. Uh, but I do think it is, it is one of the most captivating items, obviously with Indiana Jones and um, the Lost Ark. It's one of the most captivating items that there has been and people are looking for it today. And I don't know whether or not they will uh, they will discover it, but they don't have to have it to redo the temple. Um, they don't have a mercy seat. And I think that's because Jesus, I, the tomb may have been the mercy seat. When the women get there, there's an angel on the head and where the feet were and the bloody claw clothes in between, which they may very well be the mercy seat in technicolor. And the angel says, why are you looking for the living among the dead? So the sacrifice was given and, and that tomb may have been the mercy seat and that mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant may have been foreshadowing the place where the dead body of Jesus would lay as a sacrifice for us, the place that they would, sh- they would shake the blood once a year on the day of Yom Kippur when they would go back into that place. All right, so thank you very much, The Whole Truth. I appreciate that. If you have any follow-up questions on the Ark of the Covenant, uh, I'd love to be able to see if I can find some passages that would help us to understand that. Revelation 1-7. Behold, he is coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. How well does this fit Zechariah 12:10? All right, um, this is Psychman. Good to see you. So let's go to Zechariah 12:10, and let's see. I have that high, I have that highlighted in my Bible. So let's go ahead and in, uh, in my in my online Bible that I've got here. Let's go ahead and take a look at this uh, psych man. Uh, so we're asking, how will behold Jesus is coming in the clouds? Every eye will see him, even those that pierced him and the tribes of the earth will mourn. And Zechariah 12, 10, which is a great verse says, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. And they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only son. So this is a really powerful verse. It is in Zechariah 12.10, it is God speaking. You go back to Zechariah 12.1 and God's speaking and he never stops it. And then God says, I'm gonna pour out on the spirit, of, on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. This is God bringing back Israel. Uh, Romans 11.25, I think it is, that God has set aside Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This is when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And God pours out a spirit of mercy and grace on Jerusalem. And they will look upon me whom they have pierced. Now here's the connection between Psych man quoting Revelation, where it says, And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And then them looking on me whom they pierced and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only son and grieve for him as he grieves for the firstborn. So I don't think the connection is exactly the same. And I'll tell you why, Psychman. I think that the, in Revelation 1, 7, this is a supernatural event. Every eye will see him. If he returns to one spot on the earth, every eye will see him. And it seems that even those who pierced him, meaning those who who actually pierced him who are dead will be able to see his return from the grave somehow that's at least how i look at that and then this passage tells us that they will look on him whom they pierced yes they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only son and i i think the they there is jerusalem in general not just those who pierced him um and if we go back if we were to interpret revelation 7 that way let's go back and look at your question here Thanks for putting the scripture in here, by the way. That is helpful to be able to do that. Let's go ahead and take a look at here and let's see if we interpret that this way. So we're interpreting Zechariah 12.10. They will look upon him whom they pierced to be Jerusalem, to be Israel. The the nation of Israel pierced him and they're going to look at him. They rejected him, he came into his own, his own received him not. They handed him over to the Gentiles and they pierced him in Jerusalem. This is before, in Zechariah 12.10, that's before it happened that's a prophecy about God being pierced in Jerusalem here it says, behold he is coming in cause, and every eye will see him even those who pierced him so could that be read to be like we read the one in Zechariah that even the nation of Israel will see it and I think the answer to that psych man is absolutely yes we could look at that the exact same way uh, could we could we say that when he pours out a spirit of grace and mercy on the inhabitants, that they will, see, um, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Could this actually be a supernatural event where those who have died are gonna be looking on the grace poured out on, on Jerusalem and mourn for him as one who mourns for an only son? I don't think so. I don't think that we can make that connection. So I do think the other way that yes, we could be talking about the nation of Israel Um, in Revelation 1-7. Uh, good thoughts, uh, psych man, good question, and a good connection between those two scriptures. Um, I've never made that connection before, good stuff. All right, so we have a a question here from Jari. Jari says, question, Adam and Eve were given the terrestrial kingdom. Will angels rule and reign the heavens and the celestial kingdom? In the new heaven and the new earth in the millennial kingdom, thank you. So not sure, Um, let's just talk about this for a minute, Jari. Let's just kind of talk our way through this. So we know that God created Adam and Eve and I got to get this to a different spot. Okay, we know God created Adam and Eve and then gave them dominion over the earth so that God wanted to rule with them. It is interesting that in the millennium we are ruling and reigning with Christ. So we will rule with them. It's like God wanted that to be done. And so God now fulfills that through us ruling and reigning with Christ. And I think that's very powerful. God wanted to share dominion or ruling with mankind. And that's pretty powerful. And one day he will. And, and what is the passage that says that we are a kingdom of, uh, we are a kingdom of priests, or, uh, God's holy nation, a royal priesthood. So that even in the spiritual realm, we are priests, a priest stands between people and God. And i think that this is male and female as well now uh doctor i think it's heisler it might be heiser heisler i think it is uh who has done most of the work on the heavenly calves counsel- that there is a heavens that there is a heavenly council and he does this out of ezekiel he also says psalm um that genesis 1 25 and 26 let us create man in our own image is the heavenly council there are certainly passages that talk about a council that seems like God has already established to rule the heavens. Like God created angels as celestial beings and gave them power to rule with him. And that there is this, this celestial angelic council that rules with God. I, there are things that I agree and disagree with that on. There, there are things that I would look at and go, I don't think that's what that's talking about that. I mean, I think Genesis 25 and 26 can not be a heavenly council because it says, let us make man in our own image. And unless this heavenly council is creating, which we know that all things were made by Christ and without him, nothing was made, then that can't be the council because we were made male and female in the image of God. And that has to be God creating it. So God, that's the complexity of God. In Genesis 1:25 and 26, let us make man in our own image. So he created them in his image, male and female, which is a pretty amazing passage, right? That talks about, um, uh, God, uh, let us, who's the us there, the father, the son, and the Holy spirit working together to create man. And so then angels are created and they're created and, and they're created to rule in the celestial kingdom. Part of them fell, all of mankind fell. And so. Satan is the God of this world, the Bible says, but only a third of the angels fell. At least that's what we believe. It means when the tail swiped away a third of the heavens, which left other angels to rule. So angels have been ruling with God in the celestial kingdom this entire time. What does God want to accomplish with that? And is there any reason for us to think that in the celestial world of angels, that they wouldn't be ruling and reigning as well during the millennium kingdom? I don't have any reason to believe that they wouldn't be so, yeah, I think they, they might have, but this whole idea of a celestial council and God wanting mankind to rule with him and that you and I were created to rule with God and think about what was given up then. If that's the case, what was given up was us being able to rule with God and for what, for sin, for the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. So much was given up. That will be restored, I believe, during that millennial period. So um, thank you very much, Jari. I I appreciate that question. Uh, And um, we have a follow up, I think, on fact check these hands. Maybe. Please clarify which believers are in the Millennium Kingdom. Is it every believer throughout history or just those who are raptured and mortal believers who survived the tribulation. Thanks. All right, back to these hands, I'll do that. Um, The people who are populating the earth, who are alive during those days, that seem to live extra long lives and that populate the earth until Satan is released. And then there is this another Gog and Magog war, which may be a type of war rather than the leaders of that war. So in other words, doesn't have to be the same. They could be titles like kings. So Gog and Magog could be titles like kings. And so it's not the same as the war at the end of the world against Israel, but at the end of the millennium, there's another Gog and Magog war by Gentiles who populated the earth. So there are Gentiles who survived the tribulation period, just a few of them, but they populate the earth for a thousand years. Then there are Jews that are alive and are gathered at the end of Matthew 24 from the four corners of the earth. That's not the rapture of the church in Matthew 24, because Jesus comes in the clouds, there's a resurrection and we are caught up to meet with the Lord in the air and forever be be with the Lord. In Matthew 24, 29 through 31, Jesus comes back to the earth and then he sends his angels to gather together the elect, the survivors, Christians and Jews, and bring them back to earth. Not, they are not caught up in the clouds, but they are gathered together on earth where Jesus is uh, there and so they're the ones who live out the millennium. You and I and every Christian believer is ruling and reigning with Christ. We are resurrected throughout all, all of time. Will there be enough for every Christian to do? I'm, I'm quite sure. We'll have it all figured out. So the people who survive the tribulation are multiplying the earth. You and I are resurrected and in our resurrected incorruptible immortal bodies and we're serving alongside of Jesus. And the rest of the dead has not been resurrected yet. And they will be resurrected in what is called the second death at the end of the book of Revelation. All right. So hopefully that is helpful um, when it comes to what exactly is taking place during the millennium. In fact, check these hands. I appreciate that. Uh, We have a question from Kimberly, Empress Kimberly. Good to see you. She says, hi, Pastor. Hope all is well. Thank you. I appreciate that. Hope all is well has gone with you as well. Hope everything's well with you as well. <laughs> I'm giving up trying to figure out things pre-trib, post-trib, dispensationals, all millennials, kingdom now. Ah, can you help sort all of this stuff out? I can tell you what I believe and why I believe it. And this question could take the remainder of our Q and A time. Um, All right. So let's just take it. Let's just break it down. And I'm just kidding about that. We'll be able to go fairly quickly through this. Um, So you said you're giving up trying to figure out pre-trib and then um, dispensationals, all millennial kingdom now. Can I help? So I believe so we're talking about the pre-trib rapture, first of all. So you have the millennium and we believe that Jesus is coming back to rule and reign for a thousand years in a literal moment, uh, in a literal millennium a thousand year reign of Christ. He fulfills his promises to Israel during those days. He fulfills all the Old Testament promises of the earth being restored. Uh, we may rule and reign with him There's in a fulfillment of what he did when he gave dominion to men and women on the earth, right? All things we've talked about so far. And then there's a tribulation period, a time that is worse than anything this world is ever going to see or will ever see that's going to happen right before the millennium. And the rapture of the church, happens right before the tribulation or sometime before the tribulation. And I believe that. And and here's why I believe it. Jesus said, you don't know when I'm coming back, so be ready. If it happened in the middle or two thirds of the way through or at the end of the tribulation period, we would know it was going to happen. But we don't know when it's going to happen. And so it could happen in any moment, which means that Jesus wanted us to live throughout all generations in the imminent return of Christ that it could happen at any moment. The only one that fits that is the pre-tribulation position. Now, number two, in Revelation 3.10, I don't want to get here and I want to read this one to you. I think I'll be able to get there pretty quick. Revelation ten. this is to the faithful church. It says, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Notice the phrase dwell on the earth there. And notice that he promised that he's going to keep the faithful church out of the time that is going to come and test those who are on the earth. Some people say that he's going to keep them during that time, but that's not what the Bible says. He's going to keep them out of that time. And so I believe that that is a promise to us that we will not be in the tribulation period. The tribulation period is also, is also a characterized by God's wrath and anger. And the lamb tears the seal and starts the tribulation period. It's not the wrath of Satan. People say, well, there's all kinds of people that suffer, have suffered during the time of this world and have suffered the wrath of Satan. And all of a sudden you think you're going to be taken out. It's the wrath of God poured out on an ungodly world. And we are his bride. God's not going to beat up his bride. God's not going to pour his wrath out on his bride. And so in 1 Thessalonians 5.9 and Romans 5.9, it says, we have been saved from the wrath that is... And um, so those are just a few of the reasons that I believe that we will not be in the, in the tribulation period. I wanna give you another one. Uh, and uh, this is out of Luke 21. We're yet to be there in our studies on Sunday here in Luke 21. Uh, this is after he talks about the tribulation period, all the things that are going to come upon the earth. This is Jesus's instructions to his disciples. But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. Don't get caught up in in, in carousing, which is looking for sex and drunkenness and the care. And when it, when a Christian backslides, they backslide into these kind of things. It says, "In that day, come upon you unexpectedly." It would come upon you unexpectedly because you wouldn't be ready for it. Jesus said, you don't know when I'm coming back, so be ready, and I'm coming back in a day that you don't expect it. If it was during the tribulation period, he would expect it. And then he says, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the earth. Revelation 3.10 just said that God's gonna keep us from the hour of trial that is coming upon the earth to test those who dwell on the earth. So this comes as a snare on those who dwell on the earth. We are not earth dwellers. We are passing through, this is not our home. Watch therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. So that's what we're to do. Watch. We're looking around us. We're seeing the signs of the times. We make ourselves ready. We pray that we would be counted worthy to escape. That's part of making ourselves ready, being ready. And we want to escape the tribulation period. This is God's wrath. This isn't just tribulation or God's wrath. We know in the world we're going to have tribulation. This is a tribulation that comes from God's wrath. And it says, pray that we be counted worthy to escape all these things that come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. That is the rapture of the church. So I am confident and persuaded and stand strong that it is pre-trib. I I find problems with every other position. How is God gonna keep us from the hour of testing that's coming upon the whole world if we're in it? as his As his bride, he's gonna let us get beat up by his own wrath before, no, he takes us out of this world before he brings that tribulation and that struggle. Um, so Kimberly, you go on to say um, dispensationals. Um, that is the idea that there is different dispensations that God has works in. And there are those that are not dispensationalists. A dispensationalist would believe, and and I'm not a dispensationalist when it comes to the Holy Spirit. I don't believe that there was a dispensation in the church age where God gave the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit, and that dispensation is over now, and we're waiting for the dispensation of the end. But I do believe there have been different ages. God worked through the nation of Israel, and then God sent them into the world and worked through the church. And when that comes to the end, God's gonna work with Israel again. So I believe in those dispensations. Um, and I don't think that these things are too hard to figure out, uh, Kimberly. We can study them. We can look into them. We can see what we believe. We just have to be careful who we're listening to. Listen to people that will be honest about what they're reading. Know that there are different positions, and because someone holds a different position doesn't make it hor- doesn't make them horrible. They just hold different positions. All millennialism. Uh, all millennialism is a position that was founded while Israel was not a nation, and so all millennialists will deny that God is working with Israel again. I find that problematic because Israel is a nation today. Just like the Bible predicted. The Bible said they would become a nation in a day, it happened. Said that God would bring them back into the land, restore the land, it happened. And so all, all millennialism says that this is the millennium. From the time Christ is resurrected until Jesus comes back, that's the millennium. And it's just, and Revelation, the book of Revelation and all the things that talk about the last days is what people face throughout the millennium. But the millennium is a time where Satan is bound, and it's a time of peace. We are not living in a time of peace, and Satan isn't bound. Ba- if, if someone said, if Satan's bound, he's in a long chain. So, I'm premillennial. I believe that Jesus will reign and rule for a literal uh, thousand years, and um, I hope that that helps a little bit, Kimberly. I am strong on, on all of these things that you've asked about. Um, if I'm not, I'll tell you. Well, I, I tell you that, when it comes to once saved, always saved, that I'm not sure, but I lean towards once saved, always saved. So if I wasn't really positive from the scriptures and being able to really have my stance come from scripture, I don't just want what I believe. If it's coming from my opinion, I don't believe strongly in it. But if I can find scriptures and stand on them, then I can feel strong about the things that we are looking at. And I feel strong about those things, Kimberly. Thank you very much for your question. Good to have you here with us again today um we have a question from i think it's a uh, violet stag uh, i was just reading john 8. i remembered that i was told the story of jesus and the adulterous woman was added to the bible years later is that true all right so um i wish i had let's just take let me just take a look here at john eight is that the end of john eight is that where it is i thought it might have been at the end of john seven let me see John 8 here um Jesus went to the Mount of Olives I'm just taking a look here to see if I can find out where uh we have this story at the end of John uh is it John eight truth shall set you free Abraham's son and Satan's son long chapter uh let me just uh, before Abraham was I am I think we're getting there Nope. Let me just, let me just check the end of seven. Yes. Um, yeah. So it's, it's the, it's, it's begins in the end of seven and then goes on to chapter eight. Right. And everyone went to his own house. Yeah. And again, he, let me get back to it here. Um, All right. Yeah. Let me let me just put this up on screen and let's um let's read this a little bit um here. Violet stag, uh, vi- violent violet stag. Um, but now Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in the act of adultery, and when they had sat her in the midst of him, she said, "Teacher, this woman was caught in a uh, in adultery in the very act." Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This he said, testing them, that they might have something with which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he had uh, he did not hear them. So when they continued to ask him, he raised himself up and said to them, he was without sin among you, let him throw the first stone. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. We don't know what he wrote. And then those who heard it being convicted in their conscience went Out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the least, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, "Woman, where are your accusers? Or where are the accusers of yours? Uh, Has no one condemned you?" She said, "No one, Lord." And he said, "Neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more." All right. So Violet Sag, um, yes, this. passage is a question. It almost undoubtedly should not be where it is in the book of John. That doesn't mean that it didn't happen. That doesn't mean that it's not part of scripture. It doesn't mean that someone didn't add it to a manuscript at a certain point in time and that it, that it could have happened. If um, there, If you have a study Bible, you're going to look down on the study Bible and it's going to tell you, That or it's gonna put some some Bibles do different things with the text, put it in quotes and give you some kind of an an earmark on it. Uh, It may be that the story was somewhere else and was added to manuscripts to well round it out. I'm not ready to reject the account and to say that it's not from Jesus. In fact, I think we probably should take it as being from Christ. But the oldest and best manuscripts of John, as far as I understand it, do not have it in it. It is a problematic text. Doesn't mean it's not from Christ. It doesn't mean that it wasn't a tradition or written. It might not have been written by John. It may have been added later on. It may have been written by John and then added by someone later on. It's been a long time since I looked at the manuscript evidence for this to really, and I have chased it through before, to see when it was added, what manuscripts had it, what manuscripts didn't add it, whether or not we could trust it. And although I can't remember all the details to that right now, I can tell you that my conclusion was that where we are at is that it's it shouldn't be where it's at in the book of John, at least it wasn't originally in the original manuscripts but that doesn't mean it's not God's word. And it doesn't mean that we should reject it. Is it okay to question it? Is it okay to say, I'm not sure if that account happened? Sure. We, we receive our Bible through manuscripts and through manuscripts that are different. So different variants in manuscripts are are not uncommon. And so textual criticism, is the process by which you compare manuscripts to manuscripts to try to recreate what it was that the whole, that that God had written down for us. And so we trust that that has happened. God's word says in Psalms 12, I think it's Psalms 12, uh, six and seven. Let me look this up for you really quick because I'd like you to see this verse uh, that talks about God preserving his word from generation to generation. Hey, it's another one I've got highlighted. Um, So let me just go and pull it to the screen for you. Uh, It says, uh, the words of the Lord are are pure words like silver tried in a furnace on the earth, uh, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord, you shall preserve them from generation to generation. So God promises that he will preserve his word from generation to generation. Does, Does that mean that we don't have strong textual criticism evidence for the accuracy of the Bible. We have very strong textual criticism access. Remember, the Bible's not the only thing that has been recreated from manuscripts. We have a lot of different things that are, that are done that way. And the Bible is one of the strongest. We have more manuscripts, we have better manuscripts, we have newer manuscripts than any of the other things that are out there. And so we can be really confident that what we have is the Word of God. And I think it's really important for us to understand that because we can be, when when people act like, and I don't have my Bible here again, I put it out and get it ready for church on um, on, on, on Wednesday night and Saturday nights. Uh, but it, the, sometimes we think that we have the Bible, like it just comes down from heaven like it is, a little ribbon hanging off of it, little Bible-shaped thing, woo, and we get the Bible, forgetting that we got the Bible through manuscripts. And some of them, discovered here recently in, in the Old Testament, we had verification through the Dead Sea Scrolls. Th- these these were all amazing and we have stronger manuscript evidence for the Bible than for anything else. and we ought to have confidence in that. and but there are passages that are questioned. and more than just that one, the end of Mark is questioned, the um, the uh, the uh, chapter 16 at a certain point on. There are other passages that are questioned whether or not they should have been in there. Um, What does that mean? I think it means we should be familiar with it. We should be aware as Christians. We should know what it says. And if someone says, well, I don't believe that the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery is in the Bible. okay, I'm hesitant to do that, but you can do that if you want to. I'm very aware at the problems it has in the earlier manuscripts but I'm not ready to say that it didn't happen. All right, so I, th- I hope that that is helpful. Um, Violet Stag, it, it, it speaks to the way we got our Bible and that we got it through manuscript evidence. And so many, we have over 6,000 Greek manuscripts now, and you can compare manuscript to manuscript, and you and we can make a tree out of them. This is what they do to be able to figure out what's the oldest and what's the best. And reconstructing our Bible has been so strong that it is actually used as an evidence. So if you want to read, um, let's see if it's a a case for faith, I think, and I also think um, evidence that demands a verdict, the the new version is really good, covers manuscript evidence as an evidence for the Bible, not as as a way we got the Bible, but manuscript evidence and textual criticism as an evidence for, for the Scriptures, that we got them from God, and that we can trust them. So it is very powerful that God has entrusted it, entrusted it with all of us. Is it possible that the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery didn't happen? Yeah, I guess that it is possible. Like I said, I'm not willing to go there, uh, and that's just me. I, I just look at the account, and I, it very well could have happened, and somebody added it in later or John wrote it and it just wasn't added into the the book of John in the early manuscripts for whatever reason. Maybe it was in the original ones and um, was put back into it again. Remember, we don't have the originals of any of them. So uh, I really appreciate your question. It goes to something that's very important. I think every Christian should know how we got our Bible so that when someone brings up that there are discrepancies in the manuscripts, we ought to admit it. Yeah, there's, there's literally thousands of them but the vast majority of them are spelling errors. The vast majority of them are words that don't change any meaning into anything. And when it comes down to the ones that do change something that's a meaning, we have footnotes for that. And we could take time to look them up and to see which one we would believe. Also, oftentimes, this is not the case for the woman caught in the act of adultery, but oftentimes there's other places in the Bible that the where we have a problem with it is clearly taught so that we can kind of go, yeah, this is okay. I understand. I, um, I understand what um that it says that here and that this is a problem in, in texts, but over here it's not a problem. And it says the same thing. So a lot of where there are difficulties is cleared up by other places in scripture. All right. So thank you very much, Violent Sag. I appreciate being able to spend some time. Uh, talking about that. I do love knowing how we got our Bible. There's also a book called um, How We Got Our Bible by Lightfoot. It's a small book, very readable. uh, And it's really powerful. It's really powerful to know where we got our Bible from, and the way the Old Testament differs from the New Testament, and the confirmations that we've had in the manuscripts over the years.